This is Wesley Matthews, and you're listening to Numbers on the Boards with Jeff Skin Wade and Bobby Corella. Welcome to Numbers on the Boards. This is a historic episode for many reasons. First, it is our first remote. We are coming at you live from the 23rd floor of the Fister Hotel, right in the heart of downtown Milwaukee. We've got a great view. It's our first remote podcast, and it's also the first time that we're being joined by the voice of the Dallas Mavericks, one of the only people in this organization with a deeper voice than my own. He is the legendary Mark Followell. What an introduction. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. We are coming to you from the 23rd floor of the Fister, which is probably the approximate temperature in Fahrenheit today. Uh, maybe even a little, maybe a little warmer, maybe a little cooler. I'm not sure. Uh, it's a very sunny day here in Milwaukee. If anybody uh, is on Twitter that's listening to the podcast, uh, you can probably go look at my timeline. By the time this podcast is up online, I will have uh, tweeted out pictures of what our view is on this spectacularly sunny, but yet, if you step outside, frigid day here in Milwaukee, Algonquin for the good land. So. It, is, it is very cold, but you know what? I, I kind of like walking around here. You're right on the lake. Yeah. There's a river that comes through here. There's a lot of good places to find beer that you can't find anywhere else. Sure. It's a really nice town. It is a nice town. If uh, anybody comes up here at this time of the year, I would recommend a walk to the Milwaukee Public Market. I didn't go there today for lunch, but it's a uh, place that's open from about 8 in the morning until 7 at night. It's kind of a food hall. It's got lots of different places that you can eat. And besides little small food stands in there, there are places you can get uh, desserts and wine and just uh, all kinds of unique items. It's a short walk from downtown, and it's a great place. I highly recommend it. I didn't go there today. I was in a hurry, so I went to one of my favorite places, which is the Pita Pit. The Pita Pit is found frequently in college towns, which I guess Milwaukee technically is a college town with Marquette and University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee being here. But I don't think of a city of this size as being somewhere you find a Pita Pit typically. But there is one, so that's where I went for lunch today. But I think I'm going to dinner at the Milwaukee Public Market this evening around 6 o'clock or so. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. still I'm still new to the road scene here. I've only been traveling for a couple of years now. But uh, Earl makes it a point every time we're about to go to a city, he right. lets me know whether or not there's a Pita Pit there. So far, really? it's... Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's right. I forgot. Earl does love the Pita Pit. He yeah. loves Pita Pit. And I know there's one in Orlando. There is. So right Earl there in downtown Orlando, there. there's a Pita Pit. Um, there's another one on the road i just can't think of where it is off the top of my head uh but i do love yeah the pita pit's awesome yeah for sure yeah it's great okay so we got to milwaukee last night at about what 2 a.m 1 a.m local time Uh, we landed at 12 35 12 35 okay and it was was, that hour from boston yeah that's right it was quite cold when we landed yeah Uh, we were coming from boston which was quite cold but the game out there was pretty good it was a pretty good game between the mavs and boston last night um Boston won 97-90. to 90. That was your final score. Pretty close game throughout. I think there were like 13 or 14 lead changes. There yep. were a bunch of ties. Uh, came down to the last few minutes. Really kind of a almost a, a repeat of the last game that these two teams played, only it didn't go to overtime. Yeah, yeah kind of and, and, and the time. Mavs didn't have quite as big of a lead in the fourth quarter. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Boston went into its we-can-erase-the-lead mode whenever we want to. They went into that mode in the third quarter of this particular game. Remember that, that the Mavs had Boston down by, what, 13 or 15 in the fourth quarter. Yep of the game at home, and then Marcus Smart was really good in that particular home game, and, and Kyrie Irving, obviously. Uh, you know, I felt like last night it was Irving and Horford were the two biggest contributors to basically Boston snapping their fingers and erasing the deficit in a short stretch in the third quarter. I did think what was pretty interesting about it was that twice last night, Boston hit Dallas with two 12 nothing runs, one very early in the third, 
and one starting late in the third and bridging into the early part of the fourth quarter. And both times Dallas did, to their credit, have a pretty good response. Uh, Unfortunately for the Mavs last night, in the last five minutes of the game, Boston pulled away. I think it was tied at 85-85, and then there was a 12-2 run before Matthews hit a three. Basically, there just was window dressing when the clock was running out. Um, and, And that was a lot of Irving. A little bit of Rozier, but mostly it was Irving and some good defense by Horford, among others, on, on the other end. But just Irving has a place he can go that nobody for the Mavs can match. And quite honestly, very few people around the league can match right now the way he's playing whenever he goes into uh, fourth quarter takeover mode. He really has replaced what Isaiah Thomas gave Boston last year. Yeah, for sure. And I think that Shane Larkin last night, I think he had three threes. He yeah, had he 11 did. points. He did. Um, yeah, a couple in the first half and one in that. I think he hit one in that fourth quarter run, too. That 12 yeah. nothing run that was – it was the last basket of the third quarter and the first 10 points of the fourth quarter. And I believe that, that Larkin uh, had a basket in that run or had one maybe maybe after Dallas had, had – had connected on one I don't remember exactly where it was but it was it was certainly in a critical part of the early early fourth quarter for sure mm-hmm. yeah and then Daniel Tice their backup yeah. big man he came yep. in and had a career high 11 rebounds he was yep. pretty good too he was um Maxi Kleber was good for the Mavs I think it yes. was it was really like I mean Barnes had a big third quarter Kyrie Irving was magnificent down the stretch but I think last night was almost like a battle of the other guys the role players how many role players can step up for you well and, and I thought for Boston you know with Marcus Morris and Jalen Brown both out last night uh, that was a big story because Rozier had a good game. Larkin had his 11 points. Tice had a career high with 11 rebounds. If you'll remember in the second quarter, uh, Abdel Nader and Gershon Yabasele were both players who hit threes for Boston. So they basically had to play, I think, everybody that they had available last night and all of them contributed in some way at some point in some time during the game. Yeah, it was an odd game because there were, like, no wings. The Mavs had Barnes. Yeah. The Celtics had Jason Tatum, who was who's yeah. had a great rookie year. Yep. Otherwise, it was all just a bunch of point guards and a bunch of big men. <laughs> it was it was really bizarre. It was a unique, a unique game, but, look, Boston is a unique story right now. I think um, one of the amazing things to me about them is that they're 22-4, and four, and they're doing it, and I haven't looked at the updated numbers today, but they're doing it with a team that shoots 43% basically 44 percent somewhere in that ballpark they're 20th in the league in field goal percentage at least they were going into play last night and they shot less than their season average last night so who knows they might be 21st or 22nd now but they rebound really well they go to the free throw line typically more than their opponent they shoot I mean especially during the win streak they shot the ball at the line much better than their opponent they have a knack for being able to come back I believe now they are uh, seven and two this year when trailing going into the fourth quarter, which is just unbelievable. And they're seven and two when trailing by double digits at any point. That's in the game that's too. the that's yeah. the stat. That's the stat. I'm sorry, which I, is I, insane. Yeah. yeah, that is insane. And eight and four when or nine and four now when trailing at the half is their record uh, after coming back last night. So, uh, you know, they've just they they are doing it in a very very unique way with players being hurt with Gordon Hayward being hurt all year and and Morris has been in and out of the lineup uh, i believe he's played 15 of their 26 games at this point and started 9 of them and they are relying on bench players and Rozier's been better this year off the bench uh, and Brown and Tatum have both been, you know, certainly better than expected. It's they're they're a great story, no doubt about it. Yeah, and from, I mean, from the Mavs' perspective, credit to them for sticking with that with that team twice. I mean, Boston has yeah. had a lot of very comfortable wins, especially at home. Yes, and that's Dallas true. now has taken them basically down to the last couple minutes of the game both times this season. So you brought up Maxi Kleba as kind of one of the stories to come out of the Maverick game last night, the Maverick perspective of the game last night, and. 
I mean, it's just it's so intriguing to watch his game grow and expand. And I guess clearly these are all things that he was capable of doing. We just didn't know that he was capable of doing them, and and he's showing off that ability and and feeling more confident and, and, and playing that way the more he plays and the more confidence he gains as a player and the more confidence his teammates and coaching staff have him in, in him. So the block shots last night were just uh, – those were outstanding. Not to mention, you know, he's had some good scoring games recently, some good rebounding games. There's certainly an element of quickness and moving his feet defensively that I didn't know that he had that keeps people – that, that allows him to stay in front of people and um, – you know, the shot blocking, the coming in from the weak side and blocking shots. I mean, the two in a row last night where he got uh, – I remember who the first one was. Was it Horford? I think it might have been Horford yeah, first. Yeah, and then he got Tice on a follow, and then he, like, pumps his fist and he flex. Dirk's going crazy the on whole the bench. bench is, I mean, surely Dirk was yelling at him in German. I mean, it just was – it was one of the neat moments of the season uh, because it's it's – an unexpected contributor who's really just bursting upon the scene and showing that I think the Mavs have found themselves a little something here of somebody who can be a contributor for the team, hopefully for years to come. Yeah, and there was one play, too, in the first quarter where I think he took Horford off the dribble like from the three-point line and yeah. got to the basket, laid it in left-handed, which is yeah. pretty awesome. But one thing that uh, Mark Cuban was at the game last night, and one, one thing I asked him before the game was just about how Kleber, I think he's 25, 24, yes. 25 years old, He's an NBA rookie now. He was eligible to be drafted, I think, like in 2012 or 2013, mm-hmm. but he was hurt at the time. Just kind of, he had to stay overseas for a little while. But guys like Kleber, Salah, Mejri, even Tice for Boston, and, yeah. and a couple other guys throughout throughout the league, they spend time overseas playing. They just learn how to play. You know, they mm-hmm. they kind of know the game. So even though they're rookies, I mean, they're older in terms of age, but also in terms of experience. But they come over there, and, and Kleber is very effective without the ball. He knows how to set screens. He can he can switch onto guys and defend them. He plays without fouling. Like he doesn't make many rookie mistakes, even though he is a rookie. Right. So I I think there's definitely an advantage to him having kind of stocked up some experience overseas. Uh, no question, because you're you're competing against men. You're not competing. You know, you're not a one and done player who's been competing against other 19 and 20 year olds and. Uh, at the most a 22-year-old or something like that. You're competing against players that are older and better and more skilled and uh, more experienced in terms of uh, knowing things that you learn about the game that you can't learn without just the experience of playing and being in in professional leagues many years and and going into difficult atmospheres. Not to say that you don't go into difficult atmospheres in college basketball either, but, uh, you know, I think that if you play in Europe, you probably really go into some very – uh, uh, unnerving, I guess, would maybe be the best way to put it, atmosphere, as I can imagine. So so he's been through all of that, and I think that has served him and Daniel Tice for Boston and obviously Salah for the Mavericks. It's served all of those guys well to have that experience. So you're you're new to the league, but you're certainly not a professional rookie, so there's a big difference whenever you know we talk about those guys being rookies compared to the rookies like a Dennis Smith Jr. is. Mm. Yeah, and I wonder if – I mean, the Spurs have been doing this for, for – decades but i wonder if more teams are going to start looking for those guys i mean i know that there's like there's a a certain like allure to a 19 year old guy coming out of college but if you're going to fill basically the end of your bench or your role player units with guys that know how to play then Mm -hmm. there's less coaching and you can just kind of plug them and play and they can just they can do their job like you plug kleber into the starting lineup and all of a sudden i mean he's he's looking like an nba starter yeah well you know there has to be enough players to do that and i still wonder you know how big is that player pool of people you know, who can do that, and it does probably take the right organization 
because you do have to assist those guys in the transition not only to playing the NBA game but also living in America and living in a completely different country and culture and there may be language barriers and things like that. So, um, you know, there is merit to the idea of doing that. I think because we've seen San Antonio have success with it and other teams have success with it and the Mavs certainly appearing like they've hit on a couple of contributors through Salah, you know, signing him uh, now three seasons ago or, or two summers ago, however you want to look at it, and, and with Maxi. Um, but, you know, the, we, as we saw last year, uh, you know, they tried it with Brasino and, and he's younger and, and who knows, maybe if, if he had stuck around, maybe things would have gone in a more positive direction. But I don't know, that is, has he done much with Atlanta? He's been up year? and down. He's playing a little bit yeah, with their G League team, I think, right now. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it's just, it's still, it's not something that I think is, you're going to see every team doing as a way to supplement your roster. I think you've got to have, again, I don't know how big of a player pool you really have there, and you've got to have the right situation. I mean, in the case of Maxi, you just pointed out, you know, he wasn't drafted because he was injured. And so Maxie's been off the NBA radar because he was I mean he was missing significant chunks of seasons with back injuries and foot injuries and so that was the question mark for him is could he could he stay healthy? And that was probably and then you know you get to be 25 years old and then you're just not a very enticing looking player at that point once you get to be 25 or 26 or 27 years old. It just takes I mean Sala came over here, gosh, what was Sala's 29, age was 29 when he yeah. was signed. So it just you've got to have the right organization that understands what you're getting and then that, that it's a it, it's probably a relatively speaking short window with an older player and and a limited upside but still somebody who can fill valuable roles on your team uh you know and i think that 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 look if in this day and age if you're going to build a good team you you can't leave any stone unturned in your efforts to find players because the the net that you have to cast right now is as wide as it's ever been because basketball is so global and, you know, professional leagues overseas are getting better and players like Maxi and Salah and, uh, you know, Fabricio Alberto a few years ago and the Spurs gave a try at Lapravidola last year. and Davis Bertans. Uh, Davis Bertans. At least he was somebody that they drafted, but, you know, he had to stay there for, I think, uh, I think as a matter of fact, he was a draft pick in the Kawhi Leonard-George Hill trade back in 2011. Really? He's been playing, yeah. yeah wow. Yeah, and he's been playing overseas for some time, so... Um, you know that's that's a, that's an interesting thing to do, but but I do think that because of of the size of the player pool that of those guys that would be available, I do think it's something that probably isn't going to be like oh every team we're going to look up in three years look at all these teams out there that have these guys who are twenty seven year old pros in Europe that are coming over here. I think I don't think that's going to be as widespread as maybe it looks like it might be right now because we're seeing success up close and personal here mm-hmm. with it. So the other piece of big news last night that came out of that game was before the game, Rick Carlisle revealed to uh, reporters gathered around him that Nerlens Noel will have surgery to repair mm-hmm. torn ligaments in his left thumb. Um, seems like it kind of came out of nowhere, but he has been listed on the injury report pregame for about a week and a half now. Right. Um, there were, you know, you could see his, his hand kind of taped, his thumb wrapped for a while now too, and... As a guy who generally plays with his left hand almost exclusively, he's actually been shooting with his right hand a lot more in practice, too. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you could kind of see it coming. Um, this was something that Mark Cuban and Carlisle both said that has been on the horizon for some time now. Right. It, didn't, it didn't creep up on them, even though it seems like a surprise to us. Um, and then they also credited Nerlens' attitude throughout this whole thing. It's got to be frustrating for him in a contract year, but I just kind of want to hear your 
thoughts on that whole thing? Well, I probably on the telecast should have done a better job of mentioning it to people that he was listed on the injury report. But, you know, a guy gets kind of out of sight and gets out of mind, you know, and he's gone through a stretch where he hasn't played. And uh, mentioning that to me when he was over there dressed in uniform and was available if needed if they chose to put him into the game seems like that there would instantly be, because I've experienced this in the past. I mean, we've just grown into, unfortunately, uh, a society of with a great deal of skepticism and cynicism. So between him being out of sight, out of mind, and knowing that it would be greeted with a lot of skepticism and cynicism, I probably made a mistake on this to some degree. It just had been pretty neglectful about mentioning it during our telecast or anything like that. Um, you know, the, the, the things that, that I heard in asking around about it last night were corroborate basically what you said, which is that they've known that this was going to be something that would be required at some point. Is it something that if needed, he could potentially play through? I think it certainly sounds like that it is. But also, if you do that, number one, he's not in the rotation right now. And so they've just basically been sort of waiting while everyone discusses, and by everyone I mean the Mavericks, Nerlens, his agent, while everyone sort of sorts through what the options are and what the best path to go is. And with him not being in the rotation right now, getting it done and fixed and healed and being ready to play again later this season for the Mavericks or whomever it potentially might be, getting him ready to play now is a whole lot better and more palatable option ultimately for him than to to not be in the rotation but still be around and maybe be called on to play some and it not be fixed and playing through it. And it's just a whole lot better for him rather than play the rest of the season in this weird state of limbo to have the surgery now and not go into free agency coming off a surgery that you've had in the offseason. That would be an even worse situation for him, I think, than – the difficulties had the difficulties he's had in this particular contract year. So, it's best for him, in the view of all parties concerned, to knock it out of the way now and then get healthy, and then we'll see what happens after that. Yeah, there's really no concrete timetable with that either. It's just a. I mean, it sounds like it's four to six weeks. Yeah, so it's. I mean, it's a it's a fair amount of time, but he presumably could play. I mean, before the end of the season. Whether, yeah, I mean, yeah, we're looking at what that would be mid-January or so. I mean, if you're yep. if you're at the beginning of the time frame, you're talking about basically the the homestand, right? Whenever we get out of the New Year's Day break, I think the Maps play the 31st in Oklahoma City, and then start a four-game homestand on the 3rd of January. That would be the earliest the time frame is, and then the latter part of the time frame is something more along the lines of the middle of January. So, you know, it's a shame that. The whole thing is being greeted on some levels with the skepticism and cynicism and questioning of it that it is. Uh, but I guess that's just sort of sort of the world we live in uh, that that uh, I don't know. It's just I don't want to get off on like on too big of a diatribe and and people perceive me saying things that I'm not trying to say. But but um, I, I, I wish that people believed in facts a little bit more I guess that's I guess that's kind of my uh, frustration with the whole thing and I wish there wasn't the level of skepticism and cynicism that there is about it but there is and but we can all assure you you've seen it we talk to people about it I mean you know it is something that it's it's not a made-up thing 
and it is something that needs to get done, and it's better just to go ahead and get it done now. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, the hot dog thing obviously kind of only added fuel to that fire a little bit. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly made for everybody to to work on their hot dog joke series. Oh, for sure. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. That was a very popular thing. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of original humor online. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I mean, I I think it's easy to kind of perceive this thing as a circus, but it really isn't. I mean, you're around this we're on this team every day it's not i mean everybody it's just business as usual like it's really not you know without bogging ourselves down talking about this i mean it just really doesn't seem i think new orleans has been and by the way i think new orleans has been a really good teammate and i think his teammates have been really good to him i mean i think that people get in their echo chambers and start talking amongst themselves and throwing theories out there and well this must be what's going on and this must be what's going on and look the bottom line is this, is he had a spot on the rotation, and I don't think that it necessarily was all on him in terms of, you know, he goes out of the rotation and the team starts playing better. I mean, I don't think that would be fair at all to put that in, oh, well, they just stopped playing New Orleans Noel and things got better all of a sudden. But I don't think that's the case. However, he had a spot on the rotation. Uh, you know, there were probably opportunities to play more, and there were a couple of games where he got in foul trouble. And... There are places on the team and positions on the team where they basically have no other options to go to. Big men is not one of those places on the team. And after, you know, going that particular route with Noel, they went more with Mejri, and Mejri did some things in some individual games to keep himself out on the floor. And then things kind of clicked for Powell after a really slow start to the season. And between results for the team and performances of individuals noel's out of the rotation uh you know it's not personal rick doesn't hate the guy or anything like that i thought that rick's efforts to come over during the time when he talked on sunday about the hot dog thing on saturday when he spoke at practice and i've seen the video and you were there that particular day i mean i thought rick coming over there and making light of it was his way of communicating to everybody, look, I'm trying to like kind of take some of the heat off the guy right now because everybody's over here asking him about it. So let's make a joke and make light of it rather than, you know, this guy get be on the witness stand here and being grilled. Uh, ha. ha ha. Yes. Ha, ha. <laughs> I didn't really mean to be making a pun there, but I do love the grilled hot dog, by the yeah. way. That's the, that's the way to go if we're going to talk hot dogs. Absolutely. That's, that's definitely the way to go. But anyway, I, I think that, that Rick was just trying to – uh, protect one of his players a little bit, and let's come over here and make a joke out of a out of a uh, unique and weird situation, and and move forward. So you know, I I, I hope everything's going to turn out well in this situation uh, for everybody involved. And you know, I don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know how what that means and what that means in terms of him being here. But I do think that he's handled it well. The Mavs have handled it well. And it's unfortunate the way that it's turned out, but it's life in the NBA, man. Yeah, I do have one bone to pick. Uh, The National Hot Dog and Sausage Council, I believe, is what it's called, came out and said that they were delivering 25 hot dogs to the Mavs. They did. On a game day, yeah. And uh, I volunteered to multiple people, uh, high-ranking officials in that organization, that if those hot dogs went uneaten, I would gladly volunteer wow. to take on that load, and I never got a single hot dog. You didn't. No. That's disappointing, man. Yeah, so it's I'm, really disappointing. Yeah, I'm a little upset about that, but I've pushed through um, you have. just as the team has. Yeah, I don't know. You haven't smiled very much during this podcast. <laughs> why so, why yeah. do you think that is, man? Why do you think that is? <laughs> I don't um, know if you're pushing through with this uh, happy happy face as quite much as you're portraying it right now. Yeah, well, you I, seem I just, a little disappointed. I really need a hot dog. I might go get one after we're done recording. This How is a good that? place to get one. You get a bratwurst, too. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, so... 
the door is open now for for guys like Kleba, guys like Palak, you said, and also Jonathan Motley. Uh, yeah, who the and Mavs- of course Salah. You know, and, and the thing about it is too is the Mavs, you know, have depth at the big man spot, but the thing that they have in their big man depth is players who can only be centers, and so that creates. I mean, Jeff Withy's been on the floor for what forty minutes, somewhere if thereabouts that, yeah. this year. I think I think he's around around forty minutes played all season long, and now Motley's going to come up and. And in my opinion on it, I don't know what you think, if we're, if we're going to transition to that really quickly. Um, I mean, I hope people aren't thinking that he's being called up to get a look as, oh, let's start evaluating him. I mean, he, number one, he's played very, very well by all accounts in the G League. But with, uh, with, the, with, with the fact that, number one, Dirk's your starting center, and there's going to be a lot of minutes he's going to take there. And Powell has played better. And he's going to take some four- and five-man minutes and measuries in the mix. I don't think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for him unless somebody gets in foul trouble or gets hurt. I mean, I think he's coming up to me more as an insurance policy, not as, oh, we're going to come up and give this guy a look and try to determine today if we have a player here or not. I, I think that, that the evaluation of him as a player is more being made by what he's doing in the G League and then – the opportunities that might potentially open up later in the season, depending on who's on the roster after the trade deadline and what the state of the season is at that point. And, you know, if you get into a mode where you really start trying to evaluate, uh, you know, some of the younger players at the end of your roster because you want to have as much information as you can going into the offseason about, you know, what you're going to do with them going forward. So, so to me, I, I assume – that this is much more insurance policy related right now than it is he's going to all of a sudden fall into a rotation spot and people are, are you know, I guess, I guess this is a preemptive strike to, to, to quell everyone's expectations and, not, and so everyone doesn't get worked up in a lather when he's getting DNP coaches' decisions because he just, I, 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 that's, that's my belief. I could be wrong on that, but that just seems to me like the way, and, and all of these things, as you know, are subject to change. That just seems to me, though, the way things look at this point. Yeah, and at this point, too, I mean, they had a practice today. I believe there will be a practice in Minnesota on yeah, Saturday, if I'm not mistaken. So gives them a little chance to get some coaching in with these guys. Um, a lot of this stuff is also Legends-related. I don't know what the Legends' schedule is, but if they're not playing any games, then you might as well bring them up here just, sure. to, get, just to get some run with the, the, the big guys. Um, yeah, and, and who knows, and, 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 and the Mavs are on the road a lot this month. If they were at home a lot, you could probably do a lot of that shuttling back and forth like the Mavs have done with players in the past. I don't know. Uh, how their schedule lines up with ours uh, since since the Mavs just aren't home very much, you know, over the course of the next month. Uh, you know, January would be the month if this is still a situation in January where he might be able to do some shuttling back and forth because the Mavs are at home so much more in that month compared to December. Mm, yeah, and so far with the Legends, Motley's passing what I believe Tim McMahon has termed the Berea test, which is basically – you go down to the G League, what are your numbers going to be? If they pop off the page, then you're an NBA player. And yeah, I think he's a double-double double guy, yeah, right? I think 23 and 11 and a half, I think is what he's averaging wow. this year. Yeah, it's well, monster great. numbers, monster numbers. Uh, and one thing that he's been working on is his three-point shot. I believe he's still shooting in the 20s with the Legends right now, but he has made some this year. Mm-hmm. Um, he can't, He was a power forward in college. I don't know if he's a power forward in the NBA just because you got to be able to shoot that three ball. Yeah, but it sounds like that, that undersized center – but I don't even know if you would view the way the league is now, if he's undersized or not. He's uh, like seven one with the afro. 
There you go. It's just like Fletch. Yeah. And yeah. Just like Chick Hearn used to say, 6'5", but 6'9", with the afro. Yeah, so. there you go. So so he's the center. He's a normal size. Um, okay, so one thing I wanted to get your reaction about real quick is uh, last night in Boston, Cuban was holding court with the media, as he does. This was actually our first time getting to hear from him in a while. Yeah. Um, because at home, there's no more Stairmaster uh, meetings, which is sad. Yeah. It is what it is. Um, so Cuban was just talking about a lot of stuff, mostly New Orleans, mostly other things. And then I started asking him about um, – Kind of what what happened at the end of last year was he came out and said we're tanking like we're right. rebuilding we're we're getting younger we're doing all this stuff this year it's been a little more ambiguous the Mavs got off to that two and fourteen start which had people already counting lottery balls and then all of a sudden they've won five of their last eight uh, heading into the last game yeah. and five and four in their last nine right yeah. now to last night and yeah. they're only six well they were at at you know before the game last night they were only six and a half games out of fourth place mm-hmm. and they're the third worst record in the nba now that's gone down a little bit because they lost but kind of my question was and i gotta tell you i i am not paying attention to the standings i have not looked at all i had no idea that 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 they were that close to fourth place going into last night yeah well yeah i have, going I into have that, not i have not spent a lot of energy on that at this point yeah i don't blame you but going into that denver game at home on i believe that was monday night denver was in fourth place they were 13 and 9 yeah 13 and 10 uh, thirteen and I think there were thir- yeah thirteen and nine going into that. Yes, game. So there were thirteen yeah. and ten coming out. Yes, yeah, so that yeah. got them to within six and a half, which wow. is which is crazy because you think two and fourteen you're buried, but I mean mm-hmm. you win four or five games in a row and all the Cuban jokes break up the maps. <laughs> but my question to him was was basically you know you wake up and, and you know this is a really another perceived to be loaded draft class, very top heavy. Uh, there are guys at the top. It's you can say it's a five-player draft or a 25-player draft. doesn't matter to me, yeah. but the guys at the very top are considered to be very promising prospects. And I know that you are – you engage a little bit on Twitter with mm-hmm. the fans, and the, I think the fan – it's fair to say the fan base is pretty divided. You know, should they gun for a playoff spot? Should they lose? Whatever. As far as we're concerned, they're going to try and win games. That's just how it is. But my question to him was, you know, what – where is your mindset about that with all that stuff? And he said, well, you know – if we win, it's because our young guys are playing well, and I'm, you've made that point before too. Yes, they're not winning if Barnes and Dennis Smith and Yogi Ferrell and Dwight Powell and all these guys who are twenty five, twenty six years old and younger. Mm-hmm. If they're playing bad, they're not going to win. If right. they're playing well, they are going to win. So, if the Mavs do end or at least up have a chance to win, have a chance to win. Yeah, yeah. Be, be in games like they were last night in Boston. Um, they're not going to do that if it's only Dirk and JJ and Devin playing well. Right. Those those guys are not. They're just not productive enough at this point in their career to win games single handedly. So. You know, and and if it comes to be that they end up losing enough games to be high in the lottery or whatever, then then so be it. But I think that's where that's where a Cuban is, where it's you know he's still rooting for the young guys to play well, independent of the result of the game. That's because I, if the I, young guys play well, then that's indicative that you have pieces on your team that can help you in the future. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And even, even if it means you lose games, even if it means you don't win fifty, even if it means you only win thirty or twenty five or whatever the case may be, if at the end of the year, if Dennis is showing some promise, and if Barnes is still Barnes, which mm-hmm. he has been this year, if he's getting to the free throw line more and passing more and rebounding more, which he's doing all those things, and if Yogi is still shooting well and if Powell is developing and you know you bring up Motley or whatever, I think that this year for Cuban, from where he stands and what he said, is it's just about developing those guys, seeing if they give you a chance to win, and then you go into the, the offseason, you maybe sign a couple guys, draft mm-hmm. a couple guys, and, and boom, you're off to the races. There are literally like dozens of directions I feel like I could go off what you're saying, and I have so many thoughts on this. You know, number one, I've done a ton of draft research 
because I'm very, very lucky in my relationship with the guys at the ticket. I mean, you know, look, I, I worked there a long time ago, and working at the ticket led to being involved with Cliff and, and the Mavs radio broadcast back then in the late 90s, and that opened the door to filling in for on play-by-play, and that led to being at the Mavs. I mean, I'm not at the Mavericks now for 17 full-time seasons and two years where I was doing some of the play-by-play, so 19 seasons worth of play-by-play. I'm not doing that uh, if I wasn't at the ticket and getting exposure and being in a place where I could get kind of affiliated with the Mavs radio broadcast to open some doors for me. So I'm very fortunate that I still do things there and still have a post-game show on there and still talk to the guys on there and still cover the draft on there every summer with Norm Hitchkiss, the guru of all draft coverage. So I've done a ton of draft research about this, uh, about where you need to be and, and that sort of thing. And, and you know, the, the evidence is such that the top ten is where it's at. That doesn't mean that you have to be third or fourth or whatever. It just means be in the top 10. And some drafts are going to be, you know, the guys are going to get picked, like the 2003 draft, for example. I mean, the, the really good guys, people zeroed in on them. And outside of Darko at two, nailed them pretty good with LeBron, of course, at one, and Carmelo at three, and Bosch at four, and Wade at five. And then there was, you know, a tail off after that. But there were still some other all-stars that were selected later on in that the great draft. great Josh but, Howard. Josh Howard, yes, that's right, 30th pick, last pick of the first round, or 29th pick, whatever the heck it was. I guess it was 29th. But anyway, um, you know, there are – I just think that there's a, a a misconception that you've got to be, like, in one of these really, really high spots to have a chance, and that's kind of what I was trying to stress to people last year when people say, oh, you got to pick in the top seven because it's a seven-player draft. Or, I mean, drafts just aren't like that. Uh, you know, to me, what a, what a draft – what, what the reason why, uh, and I don't have all my numbers and my research in front of me about this. The reason why I think, but it's, it's around like 35% of the guys selected in the top 10, 30% somewhere in there reach an all-star game at least once in their career. And then the numbers go way down after the top 10, like 7 or 8% if you get picked between 11 and 20 and – Five percent if you get picked between twenty and thirty, and three percent of the guys if you get picked in the second round. I mean, you know, the the, the all stars just are infrequently coming from outside of the top ten. Now, of course, we're in a city right now where there was a great all star picked at fifteen, and Giannis Adetokounmpo. We know that Kawhi was a fifteenth pick. We know Clay Thompson was an eleventh pick. Kobe back in the day was thirteenth, and MVP and Steve Nash, who of course had his time in Dallas, was picked fifteenth as well. So, I do think it's interesting to note um, that seven of the last. 10 MVPs were picked outside of the top three. Really? Yeah. So if you looked at the last 10 MVPs, let me see if I can do this in memory. And then I want to get into how this more relates to the Mavs, but mm-hmm. just from a draft perspective. So so LeBron is a number one pick, and Durant was a number two pick who's been an MVP. And I believe of your last 10 MVPs, obviously Westbrook, but I believe Tim Duncan – was the other one because I don't think Shaq is one of your last ten MVPs. I think his MVPs were were far enough back that there's been ten different people who have won the MVP since Shaq. Mm-hmm. So I think the three that would fit that bill are LeBron, Durant, and Duncan, who were top three picks. And then you've got Garnett an MVP who was a five, Nash an MVP who was a fifteen. Um, Westbrook, an MVP, who was the fourth pick of the draft. Dirk, an MVP, who was the ninth pick of the draft. Um, Steph Curry, twice, 
who Steph was Steph Curry, who was the seventh pick of the yeah. draft. Thank you very much. Kobe was an MVP in there, who was the thirteenth pick. And I feel like I might be missing one more. Maybe what I say, Gar- the guys that were at Garnett, Steph, Dirk, Nash, Kobe, Westbrook. There's six of them, and there's one other one right now. I guess I can't think of, but but. Those so, are, someone at home is screaming right. And but did Steph win two or did he only win one? No, he won two. He won two. Okay, won that's two. what I thought. As, as, I thought. A, uh, as a seventh pick. Um, oh, you know what, Derrick Rose. Maybe it's four out of ten. Maybe it's four because Derrick Rose was a number one pick. Mm. That was an MVP. Still uh, though, that's a that's a pretty significant notable margin. I think. Yeah. Or yeah. Maybe Steph. it was maybe it was six out of ten, not seven out of ten. Maybe I was off by one number on that. But anyway, I think you get the point. That you know, there's been a lot of recent MVPs that were taken outside the top three. Um, and again. If you looked at who's been all-stars in the top 10 from like 96 to 2015, I think that 13 of the 20 number one picks were all-stars. But then like the number two pick had only produced four, and the third pick had produced seven, and the fourth pick had produced five, and the eighth pick had not produced any all-stars, and the ninth pick had produced 10, and the 10th pick had produced like six or seven guys who were all-stars. So it's just all over the place. And I think... Ultimately, every draft has a finite number of good players, and there are reasons that they make it as a player. Some of them are their skills don't, or skills do or don't translate well. Some of it is work ethic. Some of it is situation. Some of it is luck. And did I did my body allow me to handle the pounding? Did I suffer a freak injury? Um, you know, all of those sorts of things. There are just so many things that I think that make player evaluation really difficult. I do think that the really talented players, their talent is evident enough, whatever other flaws they might have, that usually they're probably, in most cases, they're not going to last past the first 10 picks in the draft. And then it's just, you know, all of those guys are in a different mix, um, in a different situation. And, and, you know, that situation may allow them to max out like Dirk's situation did in Dallas, or the situation may prevent them from maxing out. And I think, you know, that's without getting way off into the tangent of draft research and and what makes a player and what doesn't make a player and what goes into player evaluation and why it's certainly an inexact science. But clearly drafting is not, you know, if it was just about what you have to have, you know, you got to have that higher pick, you know. If it was that simple, then the first player would be, you know, the best player in the draft would always be the number one pick, and the second best player would always be the number two, and the third best would always be number three, and so on and so forth. There would never not, be any busts. Yeah, that's just not how it works. Yeah, there would never be any bust until you got to that drop-off in, well, these are the good players of the draft, and then now we're to the not-so-good players, and, you know, it's just, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So the reason I get so worked up about it is, is because looking at history, and every draft is different, and I don't have a crystal ball, and I can't tell you what 2018 and 2019 and all these drafts are going to be like. However, history tells me that be in the top 10, and I'll take my chances on being able to select an all-star player. So that's why I don't get too worked up about, you know, these wins and losses that occur early in the year or anything along those lines. Um and so the only thing, and, and, and I don't like coming on the team podcast, by the way, and saying that I can rationalize losses after the fact. I mean, that's a hard thing for me to say because, you know, I know that all of the people that I work with around the team and that are coaches, I know how hard they're working. And I don't like saying, well, you know, I know how hard you guys are working, but after you've lost, I can kind of like come to terms with it. That's a really weird thing to say. I can come to terms with it because certainly I understand Mark says the team is rebuilding. 
Rebuilding means you're going to take your lumps from night to night. And if that means it helps you get a dra- better draft pick, then there's a consolation to that. I mean, there is. Again, I think that's a weird thing to say on some level because I see up close and personal in a way that a lot of people probably don't how hard every coach and every player works day in, day out to be the best that they can possibly be. And, I mean, I just don't think people understand and appreciate the amount of work that goes into it. And and especially, you know, I mean, I go to these shoot-arounds right now, Bobby, and I see Jamal Mosley and – God Sham God and Larry Shyatt and Daryl Armstrong and these assistant coaches that a lot of people don't know their names and people talk about. I guess a lot of people know God Sham God's name from his legendary college basketball status and whatnot and his unique name, of course. Mm-hmm. But but how much they work with Dennis on these are the things that you've got to do after shootaround's over with, working with him individually. Here's what you have to do when you're going over a screen against Patty Mills in San Antonio. Here's half what you have to do and what you have to be aware of when you're trying to stay in front of Kyrie Irving and watching for his signature moves and to not be baited into those things. And so all that kind of coaching goes on on a day-to-day level That for these just little tiny things and these little itty-bitty edges that you're looking for as a player that can mean the difference between win and losing because it's just such a fine gap, uh, such a fine margin between winning and losing in this league. I mean, it really, really is. And, and, you know, I can rationalize the losses, but when I know how hard people are working, it's still difficult to do that. And what I always object to is when people get upset and start pitching a fit after a win because you don't, you know, the job of these guys, no matter what the state of the franchise is and how many wins and losses are being racked up, is these guys have a job to do. And that job is, is to work every day to get better. And that means the players work every day and the coaches work every day to help those guys get better. I mean, I remember there were so many people who just got so mad last year after they won the last game of the year in Memphis. And I, 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 I told somebody about this that it's like, I don't think you get, you know, how hard these guys continue to work until, until the last day. I mean, DeAndre Liggins shows up, gets picked up off waivers and shows up at the hotel in Memphis last year, the morning of the last game. And even though it's a last game that didn't mean anything in theory, some assistant coach had to sit down with DeAndre Liggins on the last day of the season whenever they probably would have been just rather thinking about what is coming up in the offseason. Some assistant coach had to sit down with him and go over the playbook so he'd know what the hell to do that night, you know, in that game against Memphis. And I'm walking into the elevator at like 3.30 that afternoon before we have a 4.45 bus, or maybe it was even more like 3.45, and I'd been out walking around, and I was coming back to my room and to start getting ready to go to the game. And I saw our player development, our head of player development, Mike Procopio, Coach Procopio, Coach Pro, walking off the bus, walking off the elevator because he was going to go early in a taxi cab over to the FedEx Forum with Dwight Powell or maybe going to be Liggins or Brasino or somebody like that to get some early shots up. Because that happens, because guys go over well before the first bus. You know, the first bus goes over two hours and 15 minutes, typically, before the game. Uh, you know, with the idea of getting there two hours before the game, typically. But, you know, he's going over there three hours before tip-off to go over and get extra work done with guys on the last freaking day of the season. So that's why, when, all, when I see all of this thing, these things happening, you know, that's why I object to people that get mad whenever they win. Because for those guys... You know, this is your livelihood, and this is how you're 
supporting families and and I and, and I mean coaches. You know, I mean not every coach is making the millions that Rick is. There are coaches who are working really hard and they don't have the job security and the long contract and the guaranteed money that Rick has. And you know, this is your reputation. And if the team is not doing well and you decide that these things don't matter and you're not working with the players in the way that you need to be working with them, then that reflects poorly on you and that potentially means you're not here. You get a reputation around the league as being somebody well, and he's a good guy to have if you're going well, but if you're not going well, then he's not somebody who's going to work hard. You know? And so that's why these guys are so dedicated to their craft as coaches to help the players, and that's why the players are so dedicated because not every guy is making millions and millions and millions of dollars a season. I mean, there are guys who are on the edge, and especially now with two-way contracts, and I think that, that you know there's just a little bit more – roster flexibility because guys have partial guarantees and just I mean you can you can find a spot here but that doesn't mean you're going to hang on to it you got to work your butt off to be able to hang on to it so that's why all of these things happen and so look I I, I know this is a really long answer but I have a lot of things to say about it and I don't get this forum to speak at length about it that much so when somebody sees me on twitter interact with somebody and yell at them basically or doesn't understand why this is more than i can say in that form why and why i'm so passionate about it because i know how hard everyone is working to be the best that they can be and everybody wants that nobody wants to go through losing 62 games in a season going 20 and 62 uh it's going to happen to somebody i hope it's not the mavericks this year but you know you never know it may be i don't i don't know um, but I know how much it means to them. I know how painful it is to them to go through all of that. And whenever you win, it's a great feeling, even if it's you know something that you're only going to be able to enjoy for a short period of time because you got to go to the next city because and get ready for the next game because somebody's waiting to kick your butt there. That's that's why I, I I feel the way I feel about these things is because you know you're you're paid to do your best and you know you can't walk into the gym, Bobby despite what some people think, and decide this is the night that I'm winning or losing because there's another team out there. And, you know, you may think, like that Memphis game, for example, last year. I mean, basically the fourth quarter of that game was 11 through 15 on the Mavs roster against 11 through 15 on the Memphis roster. And 11 through 15 on the Mavs was better in the fourth quarter of that game that night. And you're going to play teams sometimes when four starters are out, like the Clipper game the other day, or – Two good starters like Millsap and Jokic were out for Denver. Or Paul George and Ray Felton combined to go three for 23, like what happened in the Oklahoma City game. I mean, sometimes the other team's going to lay an egg. And you're going to be okay on that night, and you're still going to beat them because the other team just came in and just absolutely stunk up the joint. So, I mean, I could go on and on. I won't. You know, I know we have other things to probably to get into. But, but that's why I feel the way I feel and where my mind is on this whole dichotomy of win or lose and where the rest of the season is going. And I don't, and by the way, I don't have a problem with the fact that there are still veteran players in this team because at number one, I think it's okay to have people here to be good role models and good citizens and still play and show younger players the way of the NBA. Cause I think there's value in that. And I don't think there's any team that's out there that can look at their roster up and down from top to bottom and say our rotation is comprised solely of players who are in their mid-20s and under contract for a long time, and so they're definitely part of our future. The Lakers 
have been in the lottery for years and have accumulated a lot of young talent and have, by and large, part a young team. And they still roll out there. A 29-year-old Brooke Lopez, who's going to be a free agent at the end of this year and may or may not be on the team going forward. And a 31-year-old Corey Brewer is in their rotation. And that's even with five years' worth of lottery picks being able to accumulate that talent. Um, Of which some of those guys might not even be there next year. Yeah, exactly. So it's just... There's a lot to say about it. There's a lot, obviously, that I feel and feel very strongly about. And, you know, I'll, I'll step aside and, and let you have back at the mic now that I've just taken it for 10 minutes. No, no, very well said. Very well said. I think that everybody, unless you're there every day, I don't think you, you get it. You know, yeah. it's, just, it's just different. And my kind of, if I could just add a story on at the end of that, my kind of uh, eye-opening experience as to what you were talking about, just about the, the minute, the minutia of – of becoming a good NBA player is last year I was writing a story about Harrison Barnes and I needed to talk to him. I needed to interview him. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, whatever. It's like a Saturday practice. They're going to end up, uh, they're going to open at noon. So I'll just go to that and I'll do it then. Noon comes, they're still practicing. 1230 comes, they're still practicing. One o'clock, they open the door. So they already went over an hour. We go in and we talk to Rick and we talk to whatever player's going to talk that day. Barnes is still working. Okay, it's about one thirty. He's still working. Everybody else is gone. I'm just sitting there by myself. Mm-hmm. Turns to two, two thirty. I mean, now you're like almost two hours after practice is over. Barnes is still practicing layups, like literally just taking layups with God Sham God, yeah. dribbling in between cones, driving the lane and laying it in as you know six foot two God is just just tapping his elbow yeah. like for an hour straight he's yeah. doing that and then he's taking 50 mid-range shots and 100 free throws and then doing some more cones mm-hmm. and then finally he finishes at like it's almost three o'clock now I've been sitting there for like two hours just by myself just watching this and he walks over to the the treatment table in the practice facility and lays down and starts getting like a massage and stretched mm-hmm. and I mean that's when I'm talking to him yeah and after we're done he's still getting stretched mm-hmm. so this is like almost three hours after they're done by the time we're done talking yeah. and he's still there yeah. I mean it is unbelievable how much work it takes to be good and yeah. you know what after that I mean this is when they're four and 17 so this is like the the pit of last season yeah He's doing that stuff. Right. And he went out, and they still lost more games. He's, he went out, and he still shot in the 30s a couple times, and he didn't – you know, he he only scored 30 points like once, I think, after the first month of the year. So, like, the results – It was a game up here, wasn't it? The uh, yeah, here, yeah, that was at the very end of the year, yeah. yeah. And for all that work, three hours, two hours, every single day, staying sure. after practice, putting all that work. It's a good story. Sometimes man. the results don't show. Yeah. But, like – if you don't do that stuff, then they're never going to show. And I think now, a year and a half after he signed, I think we're now just starting to see yeah. the fruits of all of those hours of labor. Sure. And I love what he's doing this year. I mean, you know, uh, the the shooting percentage is down just a little bit, and I hope the three-point shooting percentage climbs back up for him. But the the free throws are – I mean, the last I looked at it, you know, he'd gone from 3.6 to, you know, 5 a game. And I think maybe it's like 4.9 now or something like that. But, but the last – statistical update that's accurate that I can give you was he'd gone from 54th in free throw attempts per game last year to 27th in the league this year. And maybe he's, you know, dropped back a couple of spots. Uh, his rebounding is up from from uh, five a game last year, 5.1 or something like that, to 7.5 this year. He's a leading rebounder on this team. Yeah, he's uh, – I know recently I, I had asked somebody to run the numbers on this from Stats Inc., and he was – 
something like ninth in the league in increasing his rebounds per 48 minutes. Um, you know, since that would give you a little bit more accurate gauge relative to everybody else in the league about how much he's in, truly increasing. His, you know, rebounding is a tricky statistic to evaluate because number of shots and pace and all that sort of thing, you know, and shots made and missed. I mean, all of that couples in. So raw rebound numbers to me don't tell the whole story. It's rebound percentage or rebound per minute, you know, either either one that you want to look at. In some places, it's just easier to find rebounds per minute than it is some stat data house, some uh, data uh, clearinghouses, if you will, collection places for stats are, are it's easier to get rebound per minute than it is rebound percentage. But I think both of the stats basically say the same thing. You know, it's interesting how it's interesting. Some people don't like rebound per minute, 48 minute or any sort of per 48 minute stats. Do you, do you ever encounter that when I mean, you use I, those kind of numbers? I prefer per 100 to per 48 per 100 possessions. I mean, yeah. but yeah, I, mean, see, I, like, I think I, they have. I think they have a place. Well, they have a merit if you know if you if you're using them the right way. And I think sometimes people jump in and say, "Well, don't you can't he wouldn't if you you can't guess and say that he would average all those things if he played those minutes." And I don't think I've ever I've never been one to say that's what 48 minute stats tell you. Per minute stats tell you, or per 48 minute stats tell you, they give you a base to compare. This guy produces this much when he's on the floor. This guy plays less but produces at a high level when he's on the floor. Does that mean he could play longer? No. It just means that he's producing at a really good level in his time out there. And he might be the kind of player who physically can't play at the level of energy he needs to for a longer stretch of time. So, therefore, his numbers would drop if you play him longer. But I still think it's valuable to know that this guy produces at a really high level comparable to really good players in his time on the floor, even if it's less. I think that's that to me is just, I want to know how much you are producing relative to everyone else when you're out on the floor. And I need like a, you know, if one guy's playing 10 minutes a game and one guy's playing 30 minutes a game, that's I need an equalizer of per minute stats to be able to tell me what is he doing in his 10 minutes relative to what another player would be doing in their 30 minutes. That doesn't necessarily mean that I think that the guy deserves more, but I just want to know what are you doing out there, you know, to help the team win. Mm-hmm. And so Barnes, that's, that's my, yeah. And so Barnes is way up ninth best increase in the league. The last I saw in per 48 minute rebounding numbers. Yeah. And last year he was one of the, I don't know exactly where he finished, but for a while he was leading. I think he ended up probably in the top five, certainly in the top 10 in terms of increasing points per game. Yeah. Well, he's second, almost second or third. I think, I think think Giannis led probably in that. No, it was Russell uh, Russell Westbrook. It was what really? Yeah. Westbrook was first. And I think that uh, Barnes and Devin Booker were jockeying for two, three. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe some, maybe, maybe Booker, maybe he missed enough games or maybe he didn't officially qualify or something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm not, sure on that or maybe he was second and Barnes was third or or they were really close to one another I'm not sure how it all turned out yeah yeah I'm sure Barnes is probably up there in free throws too if we if we look at that but um okay so real quick before before I let you go I've always been kind of curious about this um how long have we gone today 50 minutes 45 50 yeah 50 50. all right so how long is the podcast usually uh 45 45 okay where we've been yeah all right hey we got a special guest this time we got a great view yeah i'm not in any rush yeah so uh yeah so so screw you skin yeah yeah take that skin (laughs) i hope you're listening to this buddy um okay so you said you've been full-time announcer for what 17 years now yeah radio and tv yeah okay i did two two years uh of some games and then 2001, full-time started radio and did radio full-time for four years, and this is my 13th year doing the TV side of things. Okay, so yep, you've been around yep. for a while. I have. I remember, this was probably 
two or three years ago now where Bob Ortegal announced that he was basically he was leaving Fox. He was he was retiring from broadcasting. And uh, so I talked to him for a while, wrote a story about it. And as part of it, I talked to you and asked you about yeah. Bob. And you relayed a story to me about one time you were sitting on a plane and it was after, I think, like a close loss, tough loss. And you were you were a little frustrated. You were maybe a little just, you know, upset about the game, I guess. Wanted to see it go the other way. And Bob sat down and basically talked some sense into you, saying it's just one game, you got to move on. Right. And there have been plenty of times, like Memphis a couple weeks ago, for example, where the Mavs pull out a, mm-hmm. in an uh, unexpected victory. And maybe it's easy to feel like you're on top of the world, but there's always a game like the next day, two days mm-hmm. later. Sure. So what I'm curious about is you've spent so much time around this team. You're announcing the game, so you're like 10 feet away from the action. So, I mean, it really does feel like you're part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're part of this thing, up-close view all the time. How do you... As an announcer, as someone whose job it is to basically tell these stories, to, to mm-hmm. be excited, how difficult is it, or is it difficult at all at this point in your career, to remove emotion from it? To maybe, I mean, feel good during the game, but just to move on from it afterward. I mean, do you, do you still struggle with that ever? Struggle with getting down after losses? Yeah. That sort of thing? Sure. Um, no, I, I guess I don't. I mean, especially in light of our conversation earlier about kind of where the organization is and... And, you know, understanding what rebuilding is all about and realizing that, you know, when you're rebuilding, you're going to take your lumps. So since the stakes aren't what they were a few years ago, um, you know, I probably have an easier time with it. You know, I don't make any jump shots or call any plays or anything like that. So, again, I, I think to me, the reason that losses ever become personal and difficult for me is... You know, two or three reasons. Number one is because I do see all those people who make those jump shots and call those plays and getting back into our earlier conversation. I know the amount of work that goes into it for everybody else that's involved. And I know from a lifetime in sports now and and covering other sports, doing soccer games and doing college football games. And, and every person in every sport will always tell you this. I think it's a little harder for coaches than it is players because, you know, the, co- the players are younger and just, you know, it's a different lifestyle. But the losses are always going to be more demoralizing than the wins are rewarding. And, and so, to me, that's, that's where the struggle always comes in is that your psyche about how you feel about the team and about, I think, you know, as, as if you're on the team, I think your psyche is just a little bit more susceptible to, to fragility when things aren't going well than, than a lot of people would, would care to admit. So, so you know, that's, that's you know, because knowing how demoralizing losses can be and that you can't really savor the flavor of a win for very long, although it does make that, that plane flight afterwards better. You can tell at everybody's demeanor. Even though they're business, they're getting back to business. Uh, they're, you know, the demeanor is better because at least you know, okay, it's like, okay, well, we did what we needed to do tonight, but we can't enjoy this very long because somebody's in the next city waiting to kick our butt. And, and it's even worse after a loss because, man, we can't we, – we just lost and now we have to get ready because somebody's in the next city waiting to kick our butt. Yeah. You know, it's just you're constantly going through all of that. So, so to me, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's where the struggle comes in for me after losses and things like that. And the other thing, too, is, is that, that, that when you're the team broadcast, obviously, I mean, you want to walk the right line between telling – a story that's accurate about what's happening about the team, but also accentuating good things that are happening. 
because I do think that in the midst of losing and in the midst of rebuilding, there are still things that are happening that even though they're not resulting in wins are good things and stories that need to be told and stories that need to be emphasized and performances that need to be emphasized. So, you know, but that, that's a lot more difficult of a story to tell after a loss than it is after a win. So, so, you know, to me, I'm always thinking about our broadcast and how we can do what we need to do on the air and it be the best that it can be and how it's going to be perceived and, and all of that. So, so, you know, those are the reasons. Which, which Bob story did I tell you, by the way? What is the, was it the one about uh, the athletic director, what, his advice he used to give him when he was coaching at Drake about half the people, what half the people think about you and what the other half of the people think? No, no, it was that just, that story? He, he sat down. It was either on the bus or the plane, and he just plopped down next to you, and he could see that you were a little down, and he just kind of, I can't repeat what he said to you, but he just told you to basically you know, <laughs> forget about it. What nobody died? I mean, I decided, he used to tell Some, me that something like that. Sometimes like he would that. tell me that. He when just we, said, we got you know, wipe wipe that frown off. Well, I'll tell you, like I'll tell you the 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 story that Bob told, and and this is going to. I mean, you know, we're a podcast, so we can do this. I think this is okay. I'll tell you the the story that Bob used to tell. Bob Ortega, long time, yes, yes, color color commentator. And before with you. Bob ever came to the Mavs as a broadcaster, Bob was a college coach at Drake. Uh, Des Moines, Iowa, good school, coached there for eight years. And and this is a great story about how you have to keep your head about you in this business. <clears throat> Bob had an athletic director who would knock on the door every morning when Bob was the head basketball coach. And if it was after a loss, the AD would come by and ask Coach how he was doing. It's like, well, you know, I'm okay. It was a tough game last night. And he goes, well, just remember, half the people out there think you're one hell of a coach. And a morning would roll around a few days later. And they would have won a game. And the athletic director would swing by and knock on the door and say, Coach, how you doing this morning? Oh, I'm doing all right. You know, we had, a, we had a nice night last night. It's like, well, just remember, half the people out there think you're horseshit. <laughs> and so that is, you know, that's the lesson. Hearing, hearing that story, that's why I have, I think I've tried to the best I can adjust to what you have to deal with in my role as a broadcaster of what goes on with the team. Um, you know, I, I understand what it's all about. I also understand that I'm not out there creating any results. I'm just here to make the stories as entertaining as they possibly can be and to make the Mavericks a product that people want to get more interested and excited about. And the announcer helps some people do that. For some people, they really could probably give a crap what the announcer is saying or doing, and it doesn't impact whether or not they are or aren't going to watch the game. I don't have, you know, none of us have all the answers to that. But that being said, my job is to make it as entertaining in what I do as I possibly can and as factually accurate as I possibly can and, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, tell our good stories and, and share in interesting and uh, information. And, you know, look, I mean, and, and Derek having played – if if uh, you know if analysis has to be offered that's that's critical or you know points out something that's not going well we do that some and I usually would do it with numbers with stats that tell the story right there Harp can do it from his perspective as a former player but is always smart about you know the verbiage that you use about it so it doesn't look like you know you're you're really coming down too hard on a guy because look I mean ultimately I think most of these guys respect you know what we do. Uh, they, they understand it and they get it. And, you know, and I think most of them are honest enough with themselves to know when they haven't done what they need to do in a particular night. And if we're pointing that out, they know that we're not killing them or anything like that. They're just, you know, trying to be as, as accurate as we possibly can be and as credible as we possibly can. So, you know, that I, I, I do have some moments where the, the losses get to you, but you just got to realize that 
tomorrow's another day. Mm-hmm. You know, so league pass is becoming a more prominent thing, which gives people around the country in different NBA cities access to Mavs games. Yeah, and games are shown on NBA TV and all these things where where your guys' calls can be accessible to people that otherwise would not be able to have a chance to hear you. Right, and there are a lot of articles written. Zach Lowe's league pass rankings are are probably at the top of the list that take into consideration. Mm-hmm. The commentating crew, and from my biased perspective, you know, growing up listening to you guys call games, I love how you guys call games. It's awesome, mm-hmm. and you know, part of the the downside of traveling with the team is not being able to hear you guys because right. I obviously can't during home games. But um, wh- what I want to know is, you know, how much part of the broadcast is is just being able to react to what happens in front of you. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, but also a lot of it is preparation. Mm-hmm. And uh, you went to UNT, so you probably know Bill Mercer, right? Of course, that's my teacher. Yeah, yeah so sports broadcast class, sports broadcast class teacher. He is a legend, yes. absolute legend. So whenever I was at UT Dallas, he was calling the Ben's basketball games, yeah. and I was lucky enough to be able to call a couple games while I was there too, and it was a lot of fun. But um, man, I would I would hear these people tell stories about how, and I mean, Bill would show me and have me do it too how much prep work goes into mm-hmm. a regular game yeah. it's like utd versus ut tyler like well it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what the stakes are you got to be ready to call this game yeah the most important game of the world is the one right in front of you absolutely yeah and you know so from from the fans viewing at home you think oh this guy this just comes so easily to you guys you you and harp and skin um but i mean behind the scenes could you take us behind the scenes a little bit how much prep work goes into it I mean, how much how much is it reacting versus how much is it is it uh, preparedness? Well, radio and TV are certainly different. I mean, there are you know because you you know you can just you know in radio it's it's a lot more it's just speaking and in TV you obviously want to have prepared video to go along or prepared graphics to go along. So there's a lot more work into it that other people are doing uh, along those lines. But for me individually. Uh, you know, so that's one of the interesting differences of prep, even though that's not necessarily me being involved in it, but that's one of the other aspects of preparation is, okay, here's something I'm thinking about. So I got to tell our producer, Dave Keeney and, and our guys, our other guys on the crew, this is something I think that we should talk about tonight. This should be like a sponsored element or coming out of a break or a highlight package from the last game or whatever, because it was a particularly noteworthy performance. And so, you know, they've got to prepare that highlight package or that graphic that, you know, is going to be, um, you know, Kyrie Irving's 47 points against Dallas last time was one of the top five scoring games by an individual in the NBA this year. We did that, for example, in the last game. Um, you know, and, and and there's a lot of, like, you know, this year, I mean, all the dirt 41 moments that we've had to produce. I mean, there's just so much stuff that goes on preparation-wise away from what I do for a TV broadcast by the other people. For me individually, you know, there's a chart that I have, you've seen, you know, for every game that takes – three to five hours to prepare depending on what sort of statistical vortexes I get lost in along the way and start looking up stuff that that I want to like is something I haven't looked at in a long time or something like that I mean if it's a back-to-back I mean I can rush through it and get it done in about three and three hours or so if it's a normal time I want to spend maybe like you know a couple of hours on the Mavs and a couple of hours on the opponent and then one more hour at the end that's kind of like some compare and contrasts the season series between the two and uh, the the after you get past the individuals, the latest team trends for both of them and that sort of thing. So it's, yeah, it's a um, three to five hour process to prepare that, you know, yeah. along with the stuff that, you know, you want to try to read articles or go over pronunciations or uh, make sure you're search Twitter to know who is or isn't going to be available that night because of injury or something like that. I mean, that's, 
you know, one of the things that, I mean, there's just so many of these things about who's hurt night to night, what G League guy on a two-way contract is with the team. I mean, that's something you got to be aware of now. And Got to brush up on your Antonius Cleveland trivia. Yeah, yeah no question. Yeah, 5'8", five, 5'8", eight, five, eight as a junior in high school. Did yeah, you know that? yeah five, that, was, eight. that was awesome. Yeah, grew to 6'2", and now he's 6'6". Six, six, but, but yeah, so there's, there's... He also, he doesn't know how, what his vertical is. Wow. He does not know because yeah. whenever he uh, whenever they tested it, he cleared the rack. So the other no thing, idea. too, is that, the, that you have to realize as much as we want to think that everybody out there is hanging on our every word, they aren't. So you have to remember that sometimes you got to, like, kind of say the things that you've said in the past. I mean, in an individual game or because people are tuning in and out all the time or from things that you said games ago because you just never know who's watching that wasn't watching before. So that's that's always something that you have to be mindful to. A lot of my prep and a lot of the things I write down for the Maverick players especially are things that I just write down every game. They're the same things, but I just don't, you know, there's and, – and a lot of it never gets used. But I need to have it there in case this is the night I feel like I need to go back to this to remind people that, that uh, Antonius Cleveland was, you know – um, five eight in high school, or was playing uh, for Golden State's G League team, and here's what he was doing before he got here. Or remind people that um, you know Wesley Matthews. You know when we play Utah, to, hey, remember he started his career here. You know he was an undrafted free agent, made the team, and played every game for Jerry Sloan as a rookie and started 48 games. Um, you know, or to remind people that hey, you know Salah Mejri played for Real Madrid before he got to the Mavericks. He played for what widely is considered the 31st best professional team in the world at Real Madrid. So, you know, he, he certainly has a good pedigree before he got to the Mavs or that he's, you know, remember, he's Tunisian and there's never been a Tunisian-born player in the NBA or to remind people that, uh, you know, hey, Yogi was an all-rookie second-team player last year and the Mavericks hadn't had an all-rookie team selection since J-Ho and Marquise Daniels back a long time ago. So there's all those things that a lot of diehard fans know, but you just never know who's watching and you have to keep that stuff that information in front of you so you'll know every once in a while, I need to refer back to this because there's a good moment, you know, to refer to it and remind everybody that, hey, this is who this guy is and where he came from because, you know, we, we want you to understand as much as you possibly can about these particular players so you get more invested in them. You know, and that's, 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 that to me is the thing, is you want people at home to be invested in these players because I think that that creates a connection, which creates fandom, which creates long-term interest in a team or a group of individuals or players or whatever. So that, you know, that's, that's why the prep is as extensive as it is and why, you know, there's a lot of things that you prepare to have available and then you never use them or you rarely use them. You just, every once in a while, it's like, hey, I need to go back to this. Mm-hmm. Well, on behalf of Mavs fans everywhere, man, we appreciate the hard work that you put well, thank in. thank you. It, thank is, you. it is awesome listening to you guys talk. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks. I know there's, uh, there's probably some people right now who, who are frustrated that, that we think they should be trying hard every game, but that is what I think. And They got beef with they got beef with Followell. That's like, uh, I'm not making any jump shots, so why are you yelling at me? You're not missing any either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You never miss a single shot in your life. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, okay, real quick. I know you got a lot of other stuff yeah, you got to get to. I got my ticket interview here that I got to do here. Yeah, so, minutes, so, so real quick, I want to put you on the spot. Um, when you look back on, on your career so far, is there a game or a play or a call that you had or a moment or anything that mm-hmm. really where you where you're on the mic is there is there one thing that you look back on and like man that was the best that was my favorite moment that's my most memorable moment that's your best call your favorite call and is there any one thing that really stands out whenever you kind of look back on on all these years there isn't one thing i mean look 30,000 points for Dirk last year was the atmosphere caught me off guard how absolutely electric it was it was amazing that was that amazing night. and so i i will always remember that for the rest of my life i'll never forget it 
Uh, but there have been, you know, great Dirk buzzer beaters. I mean, that one that he had against Utah when Darren Williams had banked in the shot and he comes back down and hits it, you know, that was I, th- I felt like that was a particularly good call. Uh, I, I felt like if you ever went back and watched how we called the last few minutes of Game 6 in Portland in 2011 when they almost blew a big lead again and then managed to, you know, to fight and hang on to the game, and it, but it was still in the balance, you know, right until the final 30 or 40 seconds when Dirk was at the line, you know, icing things. Um, you know, and, and I'm proud of, I'm even proud of how we, you know, like 2007 was really hard, but, you know, during the, the We Believe thing, but, but, you know, we, we did the best we could to, to let the pictures tell good stories and, you know, and that, that game six out in Golden State, I thought we handled that well. And it was not an easy thing to do, but we tried to give credit where credit is due and, and, you know, allow people at home to see what was happening, even if it was hard for all of us to see what was happening, because ultimately still, you know, that's, that's what you, I mean, look, I respect every, every guy in this league that puts a uniform on because I understand how hard it is, you know, in our earlier discussion, how hard it is to get here and to stay here. And so that's why I've always been to try to be a give credit where credit is due guy to the other team and not make it about, well, you know, we're just having a bad night. Those guys aren't any good and they're just lucky to be beating us. No, there's a lot of damn good players in this league. And so, you know, I want to give those guys credit. And I think it would look really silly, too, if you're like always bashing on players on other teams, knowing how much movement there is. And that guy might be a Maverick one day and you're sure going to look like an idiot if you were killing somebody when they are on the other team and then they show up with the maps like, oh, this guy's awesome. <laughs> you know, so, so that's why I've always been, you know, kind of a credit where credit is due guy. And I'm, I'd like to think that people understand that and realize that I give the other guys a fair shake. And so I, I, I'm proud of those, those aspects of things that I've done over time. But I, I think to me it's like I'm not there – are, there are certainly memorable games and calls, but when I look at back at what I've done doing this, I'm proud of – being part of a great organization, I'm, I'm lucky and feel very fortunate that Mark and others took a chance on me when I was young, relatively speaking, and they didn't have to do that. And look, I mean, I grew up in the area. Uh, I'm glad to be doing my hometown team. Um, you know, I grew up in Louisville and then spent a lot of my yeah. years living in Justin, which is a town of 1,500 people. And I used to say the word, 10 like the number 10 like that so i'm glad that a kid from small town texas who used to talk like that kind of uh refined his uh voice and style and was able to carve that into a good broadcasting career and in one of the great leagues in the world not just because of its entertainment value and because how good the players are but i love the how inclusive our league is i love the social progressiveness of our league and you know our stance on issues and things like that i mean i admire so much about what this league represents in terms of not just the performance of players, but in the ways that they connect with the community and that they try to do things that they try to do to make our little corner of the world a better place. So, you know, that's, that's what I'm proud of is I've been able to represent a a team, a great team, a team that's won a championship in one of the league's great profession, you know, one of the world's great professional leagues for as long as I have. And, and, you know, hopefully we'll continue to do so for a longer period of time. But I've always said, you know, for me, when, whenever this day does, you know, whenever this time for me comes to an end, I hope it's not any time soon. But, you know, uh, I, I, I certainly hope that I have the wherewithal within me at that point to always look back at it with the great Dr. Seuss saying of, you know, don't, don't be sad that it's over, cry, or don't be sad that it's over, smile because it happened. You know, I've been really lucky to do what I've done for the, these many years and 
You know, that's to me is what when people ask me to reflect is what I reflect on. The individual moments, I mean, I mentioned a few of them to you. And to get to call all of these things around Dirk, I mean, that's, you know, that to me is what makes me happy and proud about, you know, my career's coincided with a career of an amazing person and an amazing player. And, you know, to be the soundtrack for a lot of that, you know, I've, I've been damn lucky. Absolutely. Yep. We've been lucky to have you, man. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yep. It's nice of you to for say. For the last 17 years, but also for the last hour and 15 minutes, too. All right. We it did was it. great. Yeah, no, it was great. I'm long-winded. You know that. Yeah, you, no, you absolutely. Know this. I, I don't have this, but this is, like, I do these podcasts, and I don't have, like, the forum to speak this way on, obviously, online or in our telecast. You know, we just, you don't get to do this very much. And so there's a lot of, like, pent-up things sometimes <laughs> Sometimes it comes out kind of like, you know. You got a lot real, of takes, man. Yeah, I got a lot of takes. And, yeah. and I don't get the chance to share those very often. So I don't mean to, like, take over your whole podcast and go on and on and on. But, uh, you know, I hope people found value in it. And if they didn't, I'm sorry. No, absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure they did. I speak for all of us. I found value in it, and that's really cool. all that matters anyway. I appreciate it. He you got is it. The, You're the host of the show, so that's what matters. Yeah. Well, and you are the great Mark Followell. Thank you for joining us. You got it. For Numbers on the Boards, and we will see you guys next week. Numbers on the boards with Jeff Skinwade and Bobby Corrala. 